Amen. Thank you, Kevin. Psalm 90, which you have just heard read, entitled this morning, A Look at Life. So the psalmist does something in this psalm. He takes a few verses to look at God, and he says this is what God is like, and then he spends several verses talking about, well, this is man. This is what man is like. Here's what man's days are like. Here's what life is like for man. And then he comes up with some conclusions, and he says, so in light of all this, here's the way you should live. The psalmist kind of takes a look at life, and he says this is the way that it happens. This is the way that life works. And so I want us this morning to reflect on, well, what is, what is the life that God has given us? What is the purpose and meaning of life? And how does this all end up? And in light of certain things that we know are going to happen in life, how should we live? What is this life about? Let's take a look at life. That's what the psalmist does this morning. But I want to be very upfront with you. Be very transparent. Give you somewhat of a warning. You know those messages where you look at life and you walk, you know, you you get to leave church and say, here are three things that are going to lead to a better life, or it's like, here's three keys to happiness, or three principles for the fulfilled life, and you leave just encouraged and built up because you think, wow, my life tomorrow might be better or something like that. You know, you think there's a chance that there's hope that life will have just more purpose and joy and meaning and you'll be excited and maybe there's a chance for self-improvement for you. This will not be one of those messages. And I don't, I don't say that to be uh, mean or harsh or... Um, I'm trying to be honest. The reason I say that, this passage deals with a couple of topics that are really, really difficult. Hard even for me to talk about this morning. Uh, and yet, we've got to be honest with ourselves. We've got, if we're going to understand life, if we're going to be able to evaluate what life means, we've got to look at what this psalm looks at. If I were to sum up and summarize this psalm in one sentence, it's basically one of the things it emphasizes is this. Life is short. We're all going to die. Um, have, you, have you realized the, 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 the going rate of death for humans in all of society? Uh, death is one of those inevitable things that, that we will all come face to face with at some point. And so when we look at life, this psalm takes a long, hard look at death And then it even goes beyond that and says that death is actually a part of God's judgment. And so we got to wrestle with all of that this morning, and that's not fun. Uh, It really isn't. And so uh, just to put your mind at ease, if you've heard preachers use the topic of death and God's judgment to invoke fear and scare you into making some decisions, I don't want to do that this morning. Uh, I do hope you evaluate life and death and God's judgment and make some uh, decisions in light of it. Uh, But I, I do hope that while this morning won't be fun, won't be joyful in that sense, I do hope this morning is helpful. Uh, and I think it will be. Um, and, and I'm convinced that if we don't understand death and if we don't understand God's judgment, we cannot understand life. 
And that's part of the reason this psalm was written, is that the psalmist is evaluating life, and he, he says, wait a minute, there, there are some difficult things that I can't make sense of. I, I don't understand why life is as difficult as it is, the psalmist says. Why is there so much suffering? Why do we get to the end of life in 70 or 80 years, and it's a toil, it's a struggle, it ends with a sigh? And the psalmist looks at some of it and there's things that he's got to understand and we've got to understand or we won't be able to make sense of life. And so while this morning's topics will be serious and weighty and perhaps you don't leave with like three keys to a bread or life tomorrow, I do hope you have the help you need to process life and to understand it because I think without honestly looking at these difficult topics, uh, we won't be able to make sense out of life. And uh, how's that for an encouraging intro to a message? We're going to look at death this morning. I'm going to write a new book, You're About to Die. You think it's going to be a bestseller? Uh, A lot of people want to look at that. And yet, I, I'm convinced we've got to understand it. I told you that part of the reason in, in for a few weeks here we were going to even go to the Psalms is just even some of you are aware of the fact that my mom spent about about three months uh, in and out of hospitals around the country this summer uh, and uh, as we were watching her illness and it ended in a terminal diagnosis of ALS and so she's home now but that was painful Uh, that was part of why I was driven to the Psalms and I, I, I was looking at death in the face closer than Anna and I have yet to this point in our lives. And early, early on in her hospitalization, before we had a diagnosis, there were a couple touch-and-go moments, you know, those moments where you don't, you don't, you're not sure if mom's going to make it, and dad and I are in the corner, and the hospital room is a flurry of activity, and the doctors are saying, sorry, there's nothing else we can do. And, and I did not like staring death in the face like that. And, and, and then it took months to get a diagnosis, and once we got it, it was not the diagnosis we wanted. And so uh, the uncomfortable realization, as Anna and I have talked about some of this, is just uh, we know the worst is yet to come from a physical standpoint here on this earth. All four of our parents are still alive. Um, our children are in good health. Uh, and yet at some point, we know death is a reality. Uh, and we think about that. And we don't want to go through that. That's not fun. I don't like that. Um, and some of you have had to live that closer in experience even yet than I have. And so how do you make sense out of life that way? And, and, and how do we as a people understand it? And, and what is the truth that God has given us? Because I think the Christian worldview, and I think that God has given us teaching from his word that helps us understand these moments of life. And, and, and you've got to wrestle with that and say, do I believe God's word, and can I make sense of these difficult categories of life? Because you may not like the answers, Bibles for how, the, the Bible's answers for how to deal with these topics, but you're going to have to wrestle through, does your worldview have categories for death, for the suffering of life. Can you make sense out of it? And I think the Christian worldview has those answers, and that's why I want to do the painful, uncomfortable looking at Psalm 90 this morning, because I think that the psalmist tries to help us understand these categories. Let's go ahead and jump into it with that encouraging intro, right? I hope you're feeling excited. Uh, I do hope this is helpful. 
Because I, I, I do think there's encouragement to be found, even in these most difficult moments of life. Let's start with the first two verses. And this is going to teach us about God and who he is. And the psalmist is going to proclaim something about God and his character and his nature. He says this, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting... You are God. Now, this psalm was written by Moses, and so that makes it the earliest of the psalms written. We don't know the exact details and circumstances of why he composed the song, but it would make sense in the timeline of things that Israel has... Uh, um, They've been through the Exodus. They're in the wilderness wanderings. They ha are, are about to enter the promised land. And remember what some of that was, that God had taken the children of Israel out of Egypt and before he allowed them to enter the promised land because some of very little faith rebelled against God, they had to wait. They had to wait for 40 years in the wilderness while one whole generation died off and before God was going to let the younger generation enter the promised land. And there would have been a lot of death, a lot of suffering, a lot of hardship, and certainly people close to Moses were dying. And uh, as he writes through this, he thinks about God as a dwelling place uh, or a refuge in some translations. And, and the psalmist says, Lord, you've been our dwelling place in all generations, even before creation, before the mountains were brought forth, God was. God existed. Here's what Moses is trying to get across. God is eternal, right? From everlasting to everlasting, God is God. And the psalmist takes great comfort in that and says, God, you are God of all generations, from everlasting to everlasting. And so you see God's eternal existence. But then when he goes to verse 3, now he's going to, well, in contrast, if God is eternal, if God has always existed, well, what is it for you and I? What is man? Look at verse 3. You, speaking of God, God returns man to dust. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. You catch the contrast? If God is eternal, what is man? What are you and I? Our life is fleeting. Our life is short. We return to dust. And in an allusion back to Genesis 3, the psalmist in Genesis 3 where Adam is cursed by God and says, you are from the ground and to, you are from dust and to dust you shall return. Here the psalmist picks that up and says, at the end of our lives we return to dust. Our life is fleeting. Our life is short in the sense of the time that we have on this physical earth. Yes, we are eternal beings, but in our life here on earth, our time is short. And in comparison with God, a thousand years is but a day. So even the longest, I mean, a thousand years to us, uh, that's several, several, several lifetimes, ten lifetimes or more. And the psalmist says, that's just like, that's like a one watch in the night. Like yesterday, boom, that was a thousand years. We're just, we don't have the same time frame that God does. Just in the way that things are swept away without a trace in a flood. In the way that in the morning a dream is gone. In the way that you see a, a grass fresh in the morning and then withers in the heat of the day. That's the transience 
of human life gone in an instant. And, and the older I get, the, the truer I realize that to be. I, I don't understand how my son is seven. How did that happen? I blinked and he's seven and there's two more behind him. Uh, those of you that have uh, uh, gone further in the parenting process, you're telling me, yeah, watch out. You don't understand yet how fast it goes, right? And, and, and how fast life is for every one of us. There isn't, there isn't a human being that will escape this. For us, life, it goes so fast. God's eternal. We're transient. Why? Why does that happen? Well, here we've got to understand God's judgment. So not only are we talking about death, not only are we talking about the fact that each and every one of us will die and it will happen like that, it gets, my encouragement for you this morning gets worse. It, it's because of God's judgment. It's because of his wrath. Look at verse 7. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. One way to translate that is like in the light of your countenance. Like before God's face, he sees even our secret sins, the things that we thought were hidden. God can see all of it. He sets our sins in front of him. For Verse 9, for all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and the wrath according to the fear of you? When you stop and look at it, life is very fleeting and life is very quickly. And guess what? Honestly, life hurts a lot. You get to the end of life and you finish with a sigh. Right? And some of our best lives will be 70 years. Perhaps we could really make it 80. In our day, many people are making it to 90. But you know what? And beyond. And you know what? A lot of it is filled with toil in trouble. But their span is toil and trouble. Another way to, to translate, but their span is toil and trouble, that word span is their pride, or the best thing you can say about them. So in all of our accomplishment, guess what? Toil and trouble. Life is difficult. It hurts. Why? Did you see Did you see God's anger and God's wrath in these verses? Verse 7, we're brought to an end by God's anger. By God's wrath, we are dismayed. You come down to verse 11, who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? To, to realize and to think that, that, that we, life hurts, death happens as the result and consequence of sin. Because we've rebelled against God, we realize and understand that, that life now is filled with judgment. The effects of sin are seen all around us in a world that doesn't function as it should, in life that is painful. When we get to death especially, we see and understand why 1 Corinthians 15 describes death as an enemy. Paul says death is the enemy. Why? It's so painful. It's so real. It really is a tragic and awful thing in the hardships of life. It really are painful and we see it and understand and realize, well, it wasn't intended to work this way. When God originally created things in the garden, life was good. 
God looked at all of creation and said it was good and it was man's rebellion. God didn't, Adam and Eve didn't want to live under God's rule. And, and so when they rebelled against God, that introduced death and sin. And, and when Adam and Eve said, no, God, we, we want to run life our own way, well, that's what happens for you and I is now the consequences of sin. Well, now we're living life without God's presence among us in the way he originally intended. And we see the effects of that in a sin-cursed world. And that's God's anger, his wrath, judging sin and seeing the effects of that carried out. Now, I want to stop and think about God's anger and wrath for a while because if we're honest, that's hard to think about. I mean, is that, why does God allow his anger and wrath to make life so difficult? Is that fair? I mean, is, can God be good and at the same time be a God of anger and wrath? To, and, and we see it lived out in the effects of our lives and the consequences of our sin. To be honest, a lot of us struggle with the concept of God being a wrathful God and the concept of God being a, a God who displays his anger. And there'd be a lot of reasons for that, but here would be a couple, here'd be two that are kind of on opposite ends of a spectrum, right? For one reason, we struggle to understand God's wrath because I think we think about it the wrong way. Perhaps we've seen human examples of wrath and we've seen poor human examples of wrath, people that fly off the handle and we've witnessed that in our lives and we think, well, that's God's wrath. There's no way, and, and so we think that God is a God of wrath is someone who has a short temper and who can't control his emotions and he's just sitting up in heaven waiting to squash us like a bug when we step out of line, right? And I think that's a wrong way to look at God's wrath. But some of us struggle to think of God as a God of wrath because of that. On the opposite end of the spectrum, for those of us that understand especially the gospel and we, th we think of Christ's love, so even for believers to think, well, if God is a God of mercy and a God of love, and we speak of God being a God of compassion, well, how, how does a, a, a God full of anger and wrath fit into that concept? And so we, we struggle with that, right? And, we, and, and so it's even difficult for us to think about this and to realize, well, is that, is that fair that life has to be 70 and at best 80 years and it's going to be a lot of toil and trouble and every one of us is going to come to death and some of them are going to be very, very painful. And we're going to look at it and say, how is that fair that that happened to that person at that age? And we're going to struggle with that. And we're going to struggle to think that that was God's anger and wrath being displayed on mankind. Well, I think another reason that we struggle to understand God's wrath is because we tend to... Well, here, here's an illustration that can help clear it up. If you put God's anger and wrath in the idea of a civil courtroom, right, where you're standing before a judge and you are uh, wanting the judge to display justice. If you're going to understand God's wrath, you've got to understand the idea of justice because it's so closely tied to the fact that God is a good and a just judge. And so if you're in a courtroom and you are the defendant, you're the one on trial, at that point, you're hoping that the judge is merciful, right? You're hoping that the judge is full of compassion, right? And so often we think of these instances and we think, well, how, how is that fair? How did they deserve that? I mean, certainly a, a God who is good and just, how could you allow this difficult circumstance into life? And so when we think of it in terms of the defendant, uh, 
we have a really hard time thinking about that, and we really hope that the judge is compassionate and merciful, right? But if you switch and you put yourself in the chair of the plaintiff, right, you're the one who has been sinned against. You're the one who are sitting there in the audience, and your loved one is in the chair of the plaintiff. And some crime has been committed against your loved one. And at that point, if you hear that this is a good judge, if you hear that this is a just judge, you rejoice. You say, yes, I want justice to be done. Not in a vengeful, fly-off-the-handle, can't-control-their-emotions kind of wrath, but in the sense that justice and wrath go together and there's a crime that's been committed and there must be a payment that meets the crime and you're hoping that the judge is just. And in that sense, I think we've got to understand, well, why is God a God of wrath? Because, you see, we do not understand all of who God is as God. The reason we struggle to understand God's wrath is because we struggle to understand God. We struggle to understand his holiness. If we understood the nature of our sin and who it is that we have sinned against, then we would have a better time understanding God's wrath and God's anger. We need to understand the gravity of the crime that has been committed when we have sinned against God. When Adam and Eve partook of the fruit in the garden of which they were forbidden, I don't think we understand the gravity of of that sin. When you and I rebel against God in sin, we do not understand the gravity of our sin against a righteous and holy God. In parenting, I think one of the hardest things for me, uh, far and away, one of the most difficult things is when uh, I'm, uh, it usually happens late at night when I'm especially exhausted and one of the sins, one of the children disobeys, okay? clear. I've caught them red-handed. They've disobeyed. They've rebelled. And there's no other way to explain it. It's hilarious, right? You remember the times when your kids disobeyed and you say, that's cute. That's funny, right? And yet they, they broke your rules. Uh, it's, it's funny, though. Now, now, most of the time, it's not that way, I'll be honest. But occasionally, occasionally they sin and you just, there's no other way to look at it and just like, that's funny. And you, uh, as a parent, trying to keep a straight face, right? Because as you try to uh, uh, go through instructions and as you try to teach, and uh, at the second the smile comes across your face, game over. Uh, and, and, and our oldest especially can pick that out. And as soon as, as soon as I start laughing, it's done. It's just give up. We'll try again another day. I'm sure there'll be another day you disobey and we'll go through it again, right? Well, that has never once in the history of humanity happened with God. He never looks at our sin and says, oh, that's cute. Oh, that's funny. You see, we don't understand God's wrath and God's judgment because we don't understand the nature of the one who we've sinned against. And if we understand his holiness, it helps us to understand, well, our our sin is deserving of wrath, and God would not be God if he didn't 
judge that sin. He couldn't be God if there wasn't justice in that sense. R.C. Sproul wrote a book called The Holiness of God, and I've given a few copies of this away. If you struggle to understand God's justice and God's wrath, I would encourage you to read this book. He says this, we have not used the gift of life for the purpose God intended. Life on this planet has become the arena in which we daily carry out the work of cosmic treason. Sin is cosmic treason. Sin is treason against a perfectly pure sovereign. It is an act of supreme ingratitude toward the one to whom we owe everything, to the one who has given us life itself. And when we understand sin in those concepts and in those categories, will we realize this is why the world is filled with so much sin and suffering because the consequences, we have not used the life the way God intended and now his judgment has to be, he would not be God if he allowed that to go on. And in his justice, there has to be that sin. R.C. Sproul goes on and he writes of a theologian who, who says the, in the way we need to understand this we need to think about a different question and there's a theologian who poses a question specifically about some of the judgments in the Old Testament that might appear harsh and why does God judge sin that way? And in speaking of it he says that the most mysterious aspect of the mystery of sin is not that the sinner deserves to die but rather that the sinner in the average situation continues to exist. He says this theologian asked the right question. The issue is not why does God punish sin, but why does he permit the ongoing human rebellion? What prince, what king, what ruler would display so much patience with a continually rebellious populace? We've got to think about sin and God's judgment in terms of those categories. That The question is not why did God judge, the question is, in light of our sin, why is there good in this life? Why does God allow patience and forbearance? And why does not God judge swiftly and immediately on every single person in the face of the earth for all of human history? Well, you see, that's going to get us to God's love. We've got to understand God's love to understand this. A few verses later, we're going to get to it, but in verse 14, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. Um, that we may rejoice and be glad in all of our days. How do you go from several verses of God's judgment and wrath to asking God to satisfy us with his love. Well, here's the key, is to realize that, yes, God brings judgment and wrath, but God also pours out his love. R.C. Sproul says this, he is indeed long-suffering, patient, and slow to anger. In fact, he is so slow to anger that when his anger does erupt, we are shocked and offended by it. We forget rather quickly that God's patience is designed to lead us to repentance, to give us time to be redeemed. Instead of taking advantage of this patience by coming humbly to him for forgiveness, we use this grace as an opportunity to become more bold in our son. We delude ourselves into thinking that either God doesn't care about it or that he is powerless to punish us. The supreme folly is that we think we'll get away with our revolt. And we need to understand that God is a God who must judge. He is a God who must use his anger and wrath against sin or he is not God. And the question is not why does life hurt? The question is why doesn't it hurt more? As we, we look at it and we say, why do bad things happen to good people? Well, that's only happened once in all of human history when Christ, which we will commemorate that at the end of this service, he's the only innocent person of which 
something that he didn't deserve happen to him. And I think we've got to understand that. And so as we think about God's wrath in that sense, this helps us then to understand, now how do we look at life? And so what should our response be in light of all of these truths? Well, he gives us some of the instructions in verse 12. He says this, So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. You know what the psalmist says? He, he asks God and he says, God, help us to look at life, to count our days, to number them, to take an inventory so that we can get a heart of wisdom. We need to know the truth. There is truth. We need to understand it. We need to be able to know it. And without this hard thinking about death and God's anger and wrath, we won't be able to get to wisdom. Timothy Keller, in writing on this, says it this way. He says, without this robust doctrine of sin, we will not be wise. We we will be constantly shocked by what people and we are capable of, by how life swiftly takes away everything we love. We will trust in our own abilities too much and seek satisfaction in things that we will inevitably lose, face sin and death, or be out of touch with reality. I don't relish talking about death and God's anger and wrath, and yet if we don't understand it, we do not have categories for reality. Because there's moments of life where we look at it and we say, this is just too much. This is too hard. It's not supposed to have this much suffering. And we stare death in the face. And if we don't understand God's love, excuse me, if we don't understand sin and God's anger and wrath against sin, we don't have the categories we need to have the wisdom to process life in this way. So teach us to number your to teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. And then he says this in verse 13, Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. That's what will bring true satisfaction is the love of God. We will not find it apart from him in any other pursuits, in any other passions, in any other pleasures. It's the love of God that he's displayed in the person of Christ. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the works of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. And, and you see the psalmist crying out, asking God to bless their fruits and their labors, to bring joy and satisfaction into their life, uh, to, to even let ch the children know the way that God has worked among them. Let the favor of God be upon us and establish the work of our hands. It's, it's truly an incredible thing to think about the fact that there is sin in this world, to think about the fact that God in his anger and wrath is judging sin. And what is remarkable is that in light of all of that, that God allows any joy and pleasure in life. God allows fruitful labor in this life. That God can allow us to get wisdom. Friends, that is grace. That is God's gift. And if we don't understand God's judgment and wrath, we won't understand his love and grace in that sense. And that's why you have the quote in your bulletin from John Stott. And he says this, the brevity of life should still constrain us to get a heart of wisdom, namely to make God our refuge, to find rest in his love and fruitful labor in his blessing. Oh, that that would be true of us. And if you're here this morning and you're not a believer in Christ, you don't profess to believe 
in the truth that Christ died for your sins. I would encourage you to think, well, uh, um, you've got to understand and realize that death is coming for each and every one of us. Do you have categories for this? Does your worldview allow for an explanation and an answer that's satisfactory to you? Because I think the Christian worldview helps us to see and understand that death is God's judgment for our sin, which we rightly deserve. But for any of us that would turn from our sin and place our faith and trust in what Jesus Christ did on the cross, that's how we find life and forgiveness, that his death takes the payment for our sins. For the believers that are here, And when you go through these moments of life and you're trying to make sense of them, I would encourage you to to contemplate death, contemplate God's anger and wrath, and in it, cry for a heart of wisdom, that that God would teach you to number your days so that you could get a heart of wisdom, that you would be satisfied with God's love. That alone would bring the joy and that you would, uh, that there would be fruitful labor, that God would establish the work of our hands. That's a joy. That's grace that in light of all of this, God can allow us to have a life that's meaningful and purposeful and a part of something. What a joy that truly is. And and we're going to remember that sacrifice this morning, Christ's sacrifice on the cross that makes any of this possible. And God worked on behalf of the Israelites as, as Moses wrote this. And, and from that nation brought a Messiah, brought a Savior, one, one who willingly gave up his life to take our place. And then we gather to remember that. To profess our love for those truths. To cry out to God in thanks for his willingness to provide forgiveness that he was slow and compassionate with his anger and wrath and, and provided payment for sins. Oh, what joyful truths that is. Let's, let's pray. Father, we come to you and we are grateful for who you are as God, that you provide life and forgiveness from the person of Christ. Lord, we are thankful that um, even though we realize that Death is a reality. It will be so for each one of us that we rightly deserve your judgment because you are a good and a just God and you cannot do otherwise. Yet yet we're grateful that you've provided salvation through Christ, that you provided sacrifice for sins and we rejoice in those truths. And if there's any here this morning that don't know those truths, may 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 your spirit bring conviction in their heart this morning. May they not rest until they make this right with you. We ask and pray in Christ's name, amen.